It's July 14th, 2022, and I'm talking with Matt McGregor about the week's acquisition headlines. Matt, happy Best Deal Day. <laughs> you too, Eric. Uh, so the first one we got up here is AT&T and 26 other companies join Air Force's $950 million JADC2 effort from C4SRNet. And so here we go, a bunch more indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity, IDIQ, multiple award contracts. Actually, it looks like this one's a little bit different. I remember the the ABMS ones, Advanced Bowel Management System, they gave out like 93, um, 190, uh, $950 million, uh awards to all these companies, but no one actually got all that much money out of it, remember? Um, but this one looks like one multiple award contract instead of each individual company getting their own um, IDIQ. But we'll see, um, <laughs> you know, maybe sticking with the $950 million wasn't the best for optics given what happened last time, but looks like, uh, you know, ABMS is kind of moving forward. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I mean, the, the BPA from the other one is still active and I, and I know it's being used to some extent. So yeah, it is kind of interesting. I think they must've felt that, I mean, ABMS was a moving target, right? When that other one was let, it was still sort of under the older paradigm. And, and so I wonder if sort of what happened is they, they realized that some of the vendors, the types of vendors they needed would not be, um, were not on that one. And so they needed this one to add because, because it's kind of an interesting group, right? It's, it's a, it's kind of a mix of like uh, the, some of the folks who won, you have the AT&T, but you have a lot of space companies in there, like Apollo space, atmospheric and space technology, um, Hermes, um, you have shield AI. So uh, it seems to me like this was maybe just sort of adding on to some of the other stuff and, Giving the given the Air Force and, and maybe some other some of the other services options uh, for some of these other applications. So that's the only thing I can guess. I, I don't really know what the real reason was. Yeah, I actually uh, AJ Piplica of Hermius was. I was just listening to him today on the Venture Stories podcast, and it's a good episode. But he did mention when they were talking about like, well, what are you going to do? And he was like, well, you know, doing ISR type stuff that the SR seventy one did. That's an obvious fit. But a different one, um, when you think about the vast distances over the Pacific, you know, networking is something that a hypersonic, you know, reusable aircraft would be able to provide in those kind of distances and denied environments. And so, yeah, and I just kind of put that together with this award here. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, maybe that makes a little bit of sense. That does make sense because there's absolutely no doubt that there will have to be high altitude, long endurance um, or <laughs> really fast. Um, I'm still not sure exactly where the hypersonic airplane would come into play, but uh, yeah, you could see. Um, but you definitely need those things that can connect uh, connect the networks, especially in a denied environment where other things, more common means of like tactical cloud or something, are start are going to get jammed or denied or you know hacked or what have you. So you, you need those other assets. And so yeah, this that that I guess that makes sense for this one. And I think the the multiple award part of this is actually interesting because I don't think when they made the individual awards, everyone got a $950 million contract, even like these little guys. Um, of course, they probably wouldn't fill them out, but I don't think you can still use the same, like if you're going to put a new order on it, you can't use the same streamlined procedures that you get from the competition on the multiple award. So I think like you wouldn't be able to do the you know, comparative evaluations and the oral presentations and some of those other things uh, that come along with the, the multiple award. So maybe on they the B- saw that. On the I, BPA or this one? On, on this one. 
I don't know. If it's a multiple award, usually with a Mac, if, if it's, you might have to do some like minor competition, but, um, and you're awarding at the task, task, task order level. So usually it's not a, like a protestable kind of thing in most cases. So I don't know. I, I would hope that they could, because if they have to, if they have to go through some onerous process each time, and that's not going to be very effective. They need to be able to get this stuff on fast. So. Well, yeah, you can't um, protest any IDIQ multiple award um, under 20 million. I think that's what it is. So they, they kind of have some OTA-like aspects to them. Oh, I didn't realize, is it capped at 20 million? Well, if it's over 20 million, then one of the competitors can protest the award. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right, companies knock, but Space Force acquisition portal front door is closed from breaking defense. So Space Systems Command, I think we talked about this. They created a front door um, and kind of advertised it. And it looks like, you know, folks actually tried to enter that front door. But so far as they can tell, it's just a static website. And so here's um, one quote from someone, I guess, who emailed breaking defense about this. As far as I can tell... Space Systems Command's front door is not a real thing yet. I emailed the address. First thing I got was an auto response that said they're still working on getting the front door set up and it might take a few days. Then when I got a response from someone, they directed me to fill out a form that is not yet available on their website uh, and to consult a list of upcoming events, which also was not available on the website. So it doesn't sound like the most glowing review. Maybe they should have uh, waited a little bit to announce it until they were ready. But... uh. Yeah, so. Yes, I think that is the key takeaway here. I'd like to introduce the, the SSC folks to a minimum viable product from the software world. Uh, yeah, you have to have something usable. And I think by, by not having something like, uh, I was also annoyed because I went on LinkedIn and I saw the, that they had it. So I went to the website eager to, to see the good, good goodness and I clicked away and nothing would click. So I commented and they were like, oh, we're still working on the links. So, I mean, at a minimum, they should have had some of the links up with some basic information. Um, they could have just put like mission areas and, you know, link to some SAM, SAM opportunities or something like it could have been really basic. But by having nothing, I think they sort of set themselves up for some griping. Um, but I will say uh, I listened to a whole uh, hour long interview with uh, Joy White speaking to industry folks. And, and she really did give a great overview of sort of where they're going, what they're trying to do. They're hiring people to support this because essentially how it's going to work is they're going to have people who are a filter so they can be, they can be emailed and, you know, they can have conversations, you know, kind of general conversations about SFC processes. Uh, but those, those folks that support the front door will then feed that to the right PEO shops, uh, to the right programs and say, Hey, this is a commercial solution. Um, so yeah, more to come. Uh, you know, I guess we'll see at the end of the day, if it's something that helps actually them get business or if it's just, you know, they send a lot of things and they, they don't really get a lot of business. So we'll, we'll see at the end, but there's, there's more to come. And so I'd give it a little bit more time. <laughs> yeah. I, I did also see a, a joy white um, discussion at the pricing summit and she was, she did sound good. Uh, so yeah, it was yeah. inspiring. So hopefully they're able to kind of follow through. Um, and she's, of course, the kind of contracting, uh, mm -hmm. head of contracting, right, activity yeah. over there. So next one, we got Defense Innovation Unit selects contractors to build hybrids based network. And so this is really, I guess, they're working on, you know, basically trying to transport an, a 
collection and analysis of imagery and other tactical data collected by commercial and government satellites. So they want to be able to get stuff from a bunch of different orbits and satellite types and get it together into a hybrid network. Looks like they awarded to Endural Illyria Technologies, Atlas Space, and Envil. And just looking at these, um, don't know really much about Illyria, but they did trademark space-time, the word space-time, which is interesting. <laughs> but they might be a small consulting shop. Atlas looks to be uh, one of the primary guys on the networking side. Fastest-growing teleport operator in the world, they claim. Envil does encryption. And Enduro, I'm not really sure of their role, but I assume that they will be making use of a lot of this data in their um, kind of sensor suite. Not really sure. Yeah, that, that, that kind of makes sense with Enduro because one of their things with with their, their different product offerings is the fact that they can sort of move data around and absorb, absorb data sort of Palantir like, um, you know, and, and sort of process it and present it as usable information. So that kind of makes sense to have them in there for the data, uh, the data piece. Um, and then, yeah, if you have Envilas for the, for the, uh, for the trust, uh, the cyber um, trusted, uh, trusted security, piece that 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 kind of makes sense so yeah basically diu said there'll be four main areas a secure software defined network and then you know data combination ingest from multiple sources cloud-based analytics and then a variable what they call a variable trust protocol but um generally generally known as uh, uh trusted you know, trusted security so so yeah it looks like um i think this is good so you know space force is still has a long way to go with the hybrid architecture the enterprise ground system is going to be, you know, a big piece of, of sort of that enabling that data flow from all the different assets because there's going to be uh, different ground stations that will be able to handle multiple different platforms and get that data to the right places. So they have, a, they have a lot of work ahead of them. So I think it's really good that if DIU can demonstrate this at least maybe for a mission area or two, uh, maybe this can sort of fill some gaps or help help kind of show the way for, for other mission areas. So, um yeah, this sounds promising, and I'm glad that DAU is tackling it. It's a little bit, it's honestly a little bit ambitious. I'm a little bit surprised uh, that they that they are going after this, but uh, but yeah, good good stuff. Well, maybe they're just trying to uh, affect the roadmap of companies like Atlas. You know. Yeah, they might also just sort of be too. Is like they've heard talk of hybrid architectures, right? Like Space Force has talked about that for quite a while, and like maybe they just feel like they have enough commercial commercial entities that can actually meet some of the space force missions. And they just feel like maybe we just need to show space force how it will work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, okay, we waited, we showed them that there's all these people, but you know, they're still doing their thing and the swack and the pick and everyone's meeting and having great, great meetings. But let's, why don't we just go out and actually show how you can have commercial civil and military satellites sharing data, uh, you know, working together to achieve a, you know, a single mission picture so yeah it's unfortunate that you know diu with their severe underfunding just like in the few tens of millions um you know has to go and show show them what what the future can be like right because they're not going to be able to do too much of that unless they you know get an order of magnitude more money yeah i am kind of curious how much uh, this is going to eat up of their like you said limited budget i think they got a pretty good plus up in 23 i forget i think it was doubled um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's probably, I think it was rather it, expensive. Well, I remember at the, at the, at the hearings, the, uh, the congressmen were kind of going after them. They were saying like, 
it's a 10 percent yeah. increase or something but like it got slashed a lot as well so that i don't think it was doubled uh, maybe it was but i know heidi shu was saying well all of that you know the fy23 budget was before my time so you know just wait until next year kind of thing yeah, I posted something on the from the hack D marks. It's the sack the, the Senate hasn't come out with their marks, so we don't know we don't know where they're at. But I uh, yeah, while we're while we're doing the rest, I'll look at that up and see see what the hack has. All right, well let's get to some cybersecurity. Pentagon endorses reciprocity of CMMC and FedRAMP requirements. And so it looks like this is kind of a no brainer or at least uh maybe some implementation problems on CMMC. Um, but, you know, in order to streamline a lot of what they're doing, it looks like CMMC and FedRAMP are kind of coming closer and closer together over time. And they want to give reciprocity for FedRAMP's certified services in terms of CMMC. And I guess this hasn't even been broached with the um, CMMC advisory board, <laughs> but um, potentially it's it might be... Uh, um, getting in there, they're going to kick off a 60-day public comment period pretty soon. And they would be able to start requiring CMMC and contracts by May 2023. So I remember they were going to start doing, I think it was October 21. Yep. And then that kind of got delayed by a year and a half. So we'll see if they make it. And it looks like since Katie Arrington has kind of left, they've de-scoped the, the ambition of uh, CMMC. Yeah, I don't know if this if the ambition has been descoped. I think they they have a slightly more reasonable path. I will say reading this got my blood boiling though, because this has been going on for so long and you're telling me they haven't had reciprocity discussions between CMMC and you know, they also talk about ISO and and FedRAMP. Like, holy cow, come on. Like what what like how have you not mapped out all this all the different uh, standards uh, that you want to meet and be able to say do a matrix of like, okay, here's what FedRAMP requires at these moderate high levels. Here's what CMMC level one, two, three. Here's what ISO had. Like, that is not that hard. The fact that they haven't had these discussions and like, what was the comment? Like, yeah, we probably need to do more work in order to look at standards out there. What? The, and, you know, certainly these mappings exist. I think we could probably easily do it. Like the fact that they're about to go into rulemaking and they haven't done that, like fire them all. Like that is unacceptable. <laughs> I'm sorry. That is unacceptable because like they even acknowledge that companies are struggling with this. And, and oh, so yeah. some comp, some company could actually have FedRAMP certification have gone through that whole process, but because they don't have the doc, the right documents to get the CMMC or they haven't done the right thing, they're going to be in limbo waiting for that to, you know, uh, be able to get, get signed off. And uh, just the fact they don't have that handled is really really bad business i think in the acquisition linkedin world that i've noticed at least it feels like cmmc topics are the most heated and emotional of like the posts that go on and debates in the comments that you see yeah can you blame them though i mean people have been like jerked around a million times first they're like five levels and level three you better meet it or we'll kick you out you can't even go for the contract and now it's like you know Oh no, you're fine. And now it's like, oh, but there's no reciprocity. I mean, yeah, it really has been a roller coaster for some of these poor vendors. No wonder they don't want to do business with DOD. Yeah, it's kind of a. I wonder how many of the original CMMC people are still like trying to make it float. You know, kind of feel bad for <laughs> that. Happens all the time in DOD programs and I guess policy making alike. But uh, just get handed yeah. a bad gig potentially. 
All right, China allegedly built a hypersonic wind tunnel that's too powerful for the grid. So we've been kind of talking about this one for a while, but you know they're kind of now saying it transmits nearly, um, basically it's too powerful powerful for the grid. So they're they're gonna use different types of like turbines that they would use on ships <laughs> to be able to help power this thing. Um, but relative to the Arnold uh, base hypersonic wind tunnel, which was the first to simulate you know flight speeds over Mach 7, um, it puts out 57 megawatts of uh, power, or that's what requires 57 megawatts. The one in China here is three times as wide and takes 900 megawatts of power um, to get to. I guess that they don't really know what that is, but they just kind of calculated back. Like if you had this diameter of a wind tunnel and you need to get to Mach 8, then this is your power requirement. But um, yeah, it's kind of incredible. You know, you got to hand it to China for doing major industrial projects, right? But uh, I think it's still kind of behind the scenes in terms of is this thing working and all that. But that kind of capability, you know, we I feel like we just too often don't focus on the instruments and things that make things, you know, <laughs> like like if you had biologists just trying to figure out like do biology like it, it took someone to come in there and like build an electron microscope and say, here you go. And then biology could do all sorts of things. But if you just focus on the biology, you know, like just focus on building hypersonics without having the tools, you know, it might not move along as quickly. Yeah. I mean, I did, I did. So I did look into the Arnold one. So Arnold has three tunnels. Um, the first one is basically sort of a, it's continuous closed circuit, but it, it only, it only goes up. The temperature only goes up to like 290. Uh, but it does support Mach one to five, one point five to five point five. Tunnel B is is a, a little bit bigger, has continuous flow, and it can go to, from Mach six to six uh, to eight uh, and get up to nine hundred degrees. Uh, tunnel C definitely is the more most impressive. I'm not sure if it's the newest, but it would seem like it would be. But it's uh, it's a continuous flow, uh, and it and it can support four, eight, and ten Mach four, eight, and ten. And it can get up to 1,440 degrees, so they can test the combined the combined effects of external heating, internal heat conduction, and pressure loading. So that's pretty impressive. I mean, I'm a little, I guess, I'm a little confused about why 900 megawatts is needed just to support uh, continuous wind flow at Mach 8. But uh, maybe there's something special. Well, there's there's got to be something nonlinear with respect to the amount of energy input required, given like a linear increase in the uh, diameter. You know what I'm saying? I think the 10 feet must be must be very substantial. I don't have a number for tunnel C, uh, but tunnel tunnel A and tunnel B are 40 inch and 50 inch. So 10 yeah. feet is definitely ex- exponential. That's huge. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Much more closer to scale. Yeah. So, uh, U.S. Space Force Rapid Capabilities Office to deliver first project this year, and so it started really 2018 2019 uh, timeframe. They manage 14 classified programs with the goal of transitioning them into operations. So not just like MTA, you need a, well, one is rapid fielding and one is rapid prototyping, but this is get into operations five years. And uh, yeah, it looks like um, there's a lot of good things going on with the Rapid Space Capabilities Office that we don't really know too much going on, of course, because everything's classified. But I did find a good, um, you know, briefing overview from Brian McLean, who is the director of Advanced Capabilities Group there, 
and a former acquisition talk guest, but he kind of like outlined some other good things. The requirements are only validated by the Commander U.S. Space Command, um, and then its uh, programs are assigned by a board of directors approved by the Secretary of the Air Force. Uh, they have, uh, so of course, they're exempt from the JSIDs, which is what we were just talking about there on the requirements front. They have PEO authorities, the director and PEO reports uh, to the service acquisition executive directly. They have contracting authorities, their senior contracting official um, has a $1 billion clearance authority. And it looks like they just had like 13 folks um, in all of their contracting personnel being able to move out all of their contracts in uh, about 60 days on average. They have their own hiring authorities, um, security authorities, and the last part here, all authorities maximally delegated. PMs have cost schedule performance decision authority. Like, hmm. I just feel like, you know, you can smartly expand that model. You know, it doesn't just have to be, I guess some things like you, you can coddle some things, you know, like a rapid capabilities office, but how do you get that delegation in more and more places over time? You know, cause like not everyone can be a direct report to the SAE until like all these people, but how do you still get those same outcomes? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I actually did an MPS paper on this. Cause like, I feel, I feel I've always felt that way. Like the excuse has always been that you can't scale this. And, and I don't see why not. Now, like some of the critique is that it's true. Space RCO, Air Force RCO, you know, Army Ref, when it was Army Ref, and now I'm sure the same with RCCTO. Um, you know, they, they, pick, they handpick their people, right? Like you, you, you pick the cream of the crop. So no doubt, they, you know, the Space RCO probably gets a, a, a level up in terms of, you know, talent or perspective or, you know, management abilities or something. So, so yeah, you, you, they definitely have that, but there's no reason that you can't build that. And I think you have to build that. Part of the reason why I don't think more folks in the other, the more traditional shops, why they don't feel, why they don't operate at that same level is because they're not given the same level of trust. If they were supported and given that same level of trust, I think they would step up and they would they would become more effective. But people become lazy because they know the bureaucracy is going to tell them what to do. And if they push too hard, they're just going to get shut down. So they just go with the flow and they lose the motivation and they lose, you know, a lot of the things that you want in the acquisition force. So, yeah, I agree with you, Eric. I think, uh, I think there's a lot that can be scaled. Maybe not everything, but there's a lot that can be scaled. You know, same with the streamlined requirements. Why can't we have streamlined requirements? Why does... Why is this some special thing that only Spacecom can do? Like, why can't Spock do that? Why can't the Space Force headquarters do it? So anyway, yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's interesting. I, I'd be honest with you, though, on the R, Space RCO. I honestly had thought that they had delivered a bunch of things and it just was so classified. But it does sound like, um, you know, this actually clarified that this will be the first project that actually delivers. And, yeah, they have uh, what they have, 14, uh, 14 classified programs in the, in the hopper. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that. Yep. So the next one we got, new leader takes over at F-35 program office, and that's Lieutenant General Michael Schmidt, who was sworn in as the PEO for the F-35 joint program office last Tuesday. I guess that was two Tuesdays ago. Uh, but uh, he says, it's a difficult job. It's a combination of building the Hoover Dam that flies and managing the United Nations. Oh, and by the way, with contractors, too. Actually, I think that was Fick who was saying that as he was leaving here, who had been the PEO for three years at the at the JPO um, and has battled through very daunting challenges. 
um, and a serious shortage of F-135 power modules. So, yeah, I guess, you know, Fick had some interesting comments a couple months ago about, you know, the F-35 in a congressional hearing. Um, I guess that was his last hurrah. But I was interested in Michael Schmidt here. Um, just look briefly at his background. He definitely did have a background in tactical aircraft, but he also comes from C3 in um, IN, so uh, communications, command control, what was the I? Intelligence and networking. So that was the PEO that he yep. came from. Um, so I was kind of interested, you know, it felt like, you know, that selection gives you more of a JADC2 move rather than one of like depot activation, right? <laughs> and like um, getting the power <laughs> modules working and logisticians. So I felt like, you know, maybe, I don't know where they're exactly at at the F-35 right now, but maybe um, a, a depot activation guy would have been um you know, someone that really knows that world might have been a better fit. But of course, Schmidt has that kind of experience somewhere in his background as well. Yeah, I, I worked with him uh, for a number of years, and he's he's an incredible guy. He's probably my favorite PEO. So I'm, I'm excited that he's he's taking over. Um, he's had a number of assignments that have sort of given him a lot of a lot of exposure, to different things. I I think his being selected. I don't know if I read too much into it. I think it was sort of just a little bit of like some of these PEOs have sort of progressed like one to two star. And he was, I think he was at the right point at the right time. So I'm not sure it's particular to his C3INN, but definitely won't hurt. Uh, but just his personality and his leadership style will, will, will fit very, very well uh, with this. It is interesting that uh, usually two Air Force PEOs in a row doesn't happen. So I think there is something, something to that in terms of giving the Air Force a little bit more of a say, um, given all the partners of mostly flying Air Force jets. Uh, Air Force configured configure jets, um, and the Navy's really not still not that excited about F thirty five. So, um, so anyway, kind of that's kind of interesting. But I think it's great. He's uh, he'll do a good job. I don't agree with General Fick though that the light is at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> if you look at if you look at their uh, software, Alice, and uh, the Tech Refresh three, uh, you know, going into Lot seventeen, and they basically still don't have uh, upgraded components that they need to support the new software coming. Uh, the, the block four program, uh, CD, C2D2 has a long way to go. So no, this program is not at the end of the tunnel. There's a lot of challenges ahead. So I think uh, General Fick, or General uh, Schmidt will have his hands full. <laughs> Do you think it makes sense for like, at a program like this should, you know, they kind of like build people out from the program office and accelerate them up. So like the, someone that's been in F-35 for, you know, the last five, 10 years, you know, becomes that guy. Do you think it makes sense to kind of like shuffle people around like what the Air Force and the services usually do? Yeah, it's well, the, the problem with F-35 is it's not graded at that level. So there's not too many one-star slots. Um, I think for a while they had the modernization director was maybe a one star, but yeah, there's not, you, it wouldn't work just in terms of personnel progression because uh, the two star slots would be the deputy. So you basically like have to be some other role as a one star, come there as a deputy and then float up. Now that, that might actually be the best way if you're on that track to be, be a three star. A lot of times the deputies do not get promoted and they just retire as a two star. So if you're on that three-star track, though, becoming a deputy and, and having that experience and then becoming a PO might be good because continuity on this program is huge. It takes a lot to, to learn all the nuances and all the 
crazy, you know, back behind the scenes stuff. So um, yeah, wouldn't it take so, yeah. you three years? Like Fick was there three years. I feel like once you get to three years, now you're like, now I know. Now I know where all the bodies are buried, right? Right. And, and right. then it's like, yeah. all right, I'll see you. <laughs> you know, peace out. You're right. So yeah, if you were like the deputy for two, if you brought in, it's like a two star. So have him as the deputy for three years, and then float him up as the PO uh, for a three year tour, and that he has like a full six years. Um, maybe that would be better. I don't know. It's an unmanageable program. I've always said. So you know, I think, <laughs> I think the, I, I think where the con, you know, Congress has, I think in twenty. 27 i think 2027 2028 they have the air they have this being broken out into the services and i i do think that is the right way to go let the navy go do their thing um and and, and sort of uh, manage the air force or the air army or the marine corps and the navy versions let the air force go do its thing and then you know but i think they have two different the cultures are very different the considerations are very different it's it's very challenging and then when you throw the allies and everybody all the partners in the mix it, it makes it really complicated so but they all got to go down the same production line they have to go down the same production line but they don't have to go down the same they don't have to be sustained the same exact way they don't have to be uh, well they definitely aren't <laughs> you know it's funny yeah. though because it's like the whole point and vision of the f-35 you know seems just not to have come to fruition in terms of that interoperability and commonality and then it's just like, well, it's too late. You know, we're just in it. Well, the good thing is the sensors are, are generally yeah, generally common, but but the 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 components, the structural stuff, uh, no. Yeah, it flipped right. It was like seventy five percent common, and then it's actually now twenty five percent common. Like that yeah, was the latest yeah. thing I heard. No, that's that's right. Structurally, they are all three very different aircraft. Um, so. All right. From shipyards to semiconductors, Watchdog warns of defense industrial base risks. And so they're basically kind of overviewing some of the, the major basic things that we've always heard. Um, 14 shipyards have closed in the Navy over the past 50 years, and three other shipyards have exited the defense industry as just one new one has opened. Uh, GAO has highlighted semiconductor markets as well, knowing that the Pentagon between 1990 and 2019 has decreased uh, from 37% of the global market down to 12% of the global market while Asian markets have soared. So all in all, GAO makes some recommendations. Um, I'd like to see all the list of all the recommendations that GAO has ever made. Um, but <laughs> basically, like, I guess, you know, it feels like a lot of what they do is they like, develop enterprise-wide performance measures to monitor the aggregate effectiveness of its efforts. All right. <laughs> you know, like that's every one of their, their recommendations, but um, yeah, definitely a lot of risks. So good that, good that they're, they're taking a look at this as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. I mean, it's, you can't, you gotta, have, you gotta have some of that and I guess you can only, you know, get away from it for so long. So <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's all we got time for this week. We'll uh, see you next time. Thanks, Matt. All right. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.